Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 28th, 2018, the It's Brexit Now or Brexit Never edition. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Uh, as you may have heard, if you've been near a British news broadcast at any point in the last couple of weeks, Negotiations over the terms of the UK's exit from the European Union have arrived at the endgame phase, unleashing a carnival of cabinet resignations, political posturing and parliamentary vote counting. Uh, we thought we would take that occasion to convene some of our best in-house expertise on UK and European politics to come together and take stock of the latest news while putting it in the wider context of the Brexit story, its rights and wrongs as an idea and the tortuous and torturous process by which the British government has negotiated our path out since 2016. Who knows, maybe even have a good old-fashioned fight about it, because uh, it's a contentious topic. Our guests today are a um, long-standing friend of the podcast, but much missed in recent times, Mark Goodwin. Welcome back to the pod. Oh, thanks for having me back, Adam. Yeah. I like what you've done with the place. Very yes. nice. You know, liquor paint does everywhere, uh, everywhere some good, don't you think? Uh, Charlotte Gulpin. We are uh, joining us for the first time, and we're very pleased to have you. Thanks, Adam. Uh, George Kiris. Have you been on the podcast before, no, George? No? No. Okay, well, welcome to you. Sotiris Zartaloudis, uh, a compatriot of George, being also Greek, uh, but uh, perhaps a little punchier on the subject of Europe. We'll see how, see how this unfolds. Hello, Sotiris. Yeah, rumor has it. Uh, I'm not punchy at all. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. And David Bailey, uh, who I guess uh, is uh, an expert in left-wing things and European things, and I think there's going to be plenty of scope for us to bring that angle into this discussion here today. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, that sounds okay. Okay. Um, they are all from the political science department, and they are possessed of a goodly range of views on this topic. Thanks to them all for being with us. So, to recap, uh, given that I know our listeners may have a sliding scale of prior acquaintance with the Brexit issue, uh, the UK voted on the 23rd of June 2016 in a referendum to leave the European Union, and they did that by 52 to 48%. On the 29th of March 2017, the British government then invoked Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union. This started a ticking clock that means absent some further intervention, the UK will cease to be a member of the EU on March 30th, 2019. If that were to happen, with no agreement on new terms for the UK-EU relationship, all sorts of important things like import-export of goods, operation of transport links, and various Europe-wide legal and regulatory arrangements would simply grind to a halt. Um, most people think that would be a catastrophe. So the government, led by Prime Minister Theresa May, um, and fond we all are of her, has been negotiating a formal deal for the UK's departure that would put in place a transitional arrangement to follow the UK's formal exit that continues much of the status quo, the idea being that a permanent new arrangement governing trade, etc., would then be negotiated <coughs> subsequently. Um, that deal was finally concluded this past weekend, and it seems no one's happy either in Parliament or in the public at large. And those who never wanted to leave the EU hate the deal because it puts the UK in an objectively worse position than membership. Those MPs who were most enthusiastic about Brexit hate it because it appears to waive the UK's right to negotiate new trade deals of its own outside the EU's trade terms. And they worry might open the door to the UK living forever in a transitional limbo that blocks off their radical ambitions. Uh, the small Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, uh, on whose votes the government depends to survive, 
five, hate it because it concedes the principle that there might be a trade border between Northern Ireland and Britain as the price of avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland. Oh, and much of the public hate it, lest we forget, because they're heartily sick of hearing about Brexit and struggle to understand why it hasn't simply happened already. Uh, most pundits predict that May's deal will go down in flames on a first vote in Parliament. A panic will then ensue, in which advocates of the deal seek to present its passing as the only alternative to a catastrophic no-deal Brexit, um, while supporters of a second referendum to cancel Brexit altogether seek to remind everyone that that's an option too. Okay, so that's the table laid. Um, Mark, I'm going to come to you first, because you are our, uh, um, our ranking British politics obsessive in this room. Um, the people voted for Brexit. They did, didn't they? The people voted sure for Brexit. Um, but they were promised, uh, at least uh, I think I'm old enough to recall, during that campaign that it wouldn't involve much disruption of our trade ties with Europe. It would appear that what Theresa May has come up with, holding operation of sorts as it is, basically provides both of those things, and yet everyone's miserable uh, in one variety or another. Why, why is everyone so unhappy with something that seems to more or less resemble what was promised? Well, I think, you know, in a previous podcast, I um, mentioned something that Bernard Crick was like to say, which was that democracy is not there to make all sad hearts glad. And I think you look at what's happened here uh, with this deal, obviously uh, he's been proved right because no one's glad about this at all. It's this situation, as you described it there very well, I think is that there are multiple factions within Parliament, all of them really want something that they're not being offered and they're all really terrified of something that's still a possibility. So that's why uh, it's still so live and so uh, volatile uh, and unpredictable at the moment. And that terrifying thing is the possibility of crashing out by default because no one's agreed anything affirmative that we just stop being part of the EU and there's no arrangement in place at all to cover that. Well, some people are terrified of that. I think that's one of the things that some of the factions are terrified of. Among the other things that people are terrified of is the prospect of a Jeremy Corbyn-led government, the uh, prospect of, as you said, uh, the border between Northern Ireland and the UK, or, you know, uh, the other end uh, between Northern Ireland and the Republic. So I think there are various things that people are really uh, concerned about and various things that people really want, which, you know, include things like, you know, uh, to reset the, to go back to square one and remain and forget all this, you know, wait for all this to blow over kind of thing. Or uh, alternatively, there's a, a faction of people who are looking down the barrel of the last 25 or 30 years of their life's work in politics coming to a very sort of miserable compromise as far as they see it. So, and that their sort of utopia is a, a very different situation where... Brexit is executed in the fullest possible way with the, you know, in order to sort of turn Britain into a kind of, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong of, of Europe. So that's uh, what one faction wanted out of Brexit. They're not being offered that deal. It makes that uh, virtually impossible as any kind of long-term project. You know, on the other side, you've got people who see an opportunity to go back to square one and everybody's scared of, you know, either a second referendum, a general election. Most Conservatives are scared of that because they think they're going to lose. So there's a lot of fear, a lot of dashed hopes, and uh, that's why nobody's happy. 
Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that uh, almost everybody seems to be able to agree on, at least everyone that I can find in, in scanning the media horizon, is that at least on the first contact that it has with Parliament, this deal of Theresa May is, is going to go down, uh, and go down pretty hard. Um, what's the temperature of this room vis-a-vis uh, -vis the likely passage of this deal or something very close to this deal, if not in, if, if not the first time it gets voted on, then after some kind of um, vote it down once, hair on fire, uh, five alarm crisis, atmosphere kicks in, second vote uh, kind of scenario. Do people think that Theresa May is going to pull this off or is that, <laughs> is that not likely? I think it's not out of the question that it could pass either, you know, first go around, second go around or something like that. I don't think it's t to be ruled out. But uh, unfortunately, my line, I think, for this whole podcast is going to be no predictions. So um, I think all of the, you know, outcomes are still possible. I don't think it's out of the question that it could pass. I think probably people will want to make a show of voting it down the first time. Yeah, I know that's a prediction already, isn't it? But I think I can see why people would want but to. But everyone's predicting time. it, so you'll be in very safe numbers if that yeah, turns okay, out to yeah. be wrong. But I don't think it's out of the question that it could pass in some form. The, the, the argument for why people might want to pass it, as I mentioned, there's a large group who are really, you know, I'm thinking particularly of a kind of you know, a large group within the Labour Party who are most frightened of the No Deal scenario. Their reason to not support it on the first go round would be, you know, the optics, I suppose, and they don't want to be seen to be supporting a, mm. uh, the deal uh, or propping up the government or anything like that when they think they've got a real chance of um, replacing them. But I think if it just depends how concerned they are about that uh, prospect of no deal. I think there are probably a lot of Labour MPs who are more concerned uh, and would consider. You know, provided they're given some political cover and, you know, under the guise of some sort of renegotiation that maybe they're in on, that they could consider voting it down before all the other permutations come into play. Yeah, Charlotte. Yeah, just to follow on from that, I mean, firstly, I would agree with Mark uh, about making predictions, and I don't want to engage in that either. It's ended many a uh, fine reputation, <laughs> even on this podcast alone, exactly. let alone in the world more generally. Um, but yeah, I, th I also, uh, I feel like there's um, a kind of consensus that this deal isn't going to pass. And I think that's true at the moment, that it doesn't seem like she has the numbers, but it will very much depend on how successful May defends this deal. She's going to have, she's going to spend two very intensive weeks um, pushing for it. Because um, right, the date of the vote has now been set and it's sometime 11th, in early December? 11th, 11th December, yeah. Mark it in your diaries, um, folks. You know, we've started to, she's kind of put in this kind of possibility that if people don't vote for this deal, we might not get a Brexit at all. And so I think one question is how how successful that is in scaring the hardliners into voting for the deal as the only option. And then also, as Mark said, in the Labour Party, how there's now seems to be a kind of growing campaign for a people's vote within the Labour Party. And I think it's how successful that campaign is in convincing Labour MPs to vote down the deal, not to risk a no deal, but to push 
for another referendum that would have Remain as an option. Right, because um, like, I mean, Theresa May seems to be playing a kind of double game here, where like the way she's constructing it is like, it, it's my deal or nothing, but she's kind of speaking to two audiences and nothing means a different thing to each of them. Like nothing mostly means like no deal Brexit, um, you know, planes fall from the air, uh, horses turn and eat one another, um, the nation slips into the sea. But to the specific constituency favoring Brexit in her own party, nothing means, well, maybe, just maybe, um, I will throw my lot in with, you know, with, with the people who want to undo this whole thing and you won't get Brexit uh, of any kind whatsoever, which, you know, from their point of view is worse than all those things that I just described. Satiris? Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, I would say that we see that in a way, both the EU and uh, the British establishment, they're very vague about the existence of Plan B. It's a strategy that we've seen elsewhere in Europe, in Greece, Italy, Ireland, etc., that, look, that's the deal, and if you don't have that deal, there is nothing. There's a vacuum. But we know that's not, that's not the case ever. There's always a Plan B. But you're right to, to highlight that they haven't defined what will happen if or when the deal will go down. I agree with both Charlotte and Mark that we cannot make any predictions. The only thing I wanted to add in the... As a non-expert of uh, British politics, that my impression is that in the British Parliament there's also like a very strong constituency within the Labour Party of people who are I wouldn't I don't know if I would call them leavers, uh, but definitely are people who want to uh, look sympathetic to the cause of Brexit, either of conviction or most likely because a lot of UKIP voters have been voting for them, mm-hmm. especially outside London. So we have a, a, a situation where the Labour Party and its leader especially Jeremy Corbyn, who is quite Eurosceptic, really, uh, even though he's trying to hide it. Uh, We have a situation where they want to retain the UKIP vote. Uh, Just a reminder uh, that uh, the UKIP people, the UKIP voters, have been voting now after Brexit, like 60-40% in favour of Labour. A lot of them went to Labour, they didn't go all to the Conservatives. So uh, I would say that there's another group within the Parliament that I think will vote for Brexit and... I would say that this makes Theresa May's work a bit easier than what people assume. Yeah, and it depends, it depends partly on its size, but I mean, Stephen Bush of the New Statesman, who I tend to refer to when I want to know what's going on in the engine room of, of, of the Labour Party headcount, um, would probably say that there's a couple of categories to distinguish there, that there's a few members of parliament, Labour members of parliament, who not necessarily all for the same reasons, but who themselves believe that the European Union's a bad thing and have wanted to leave it for some time and would like to leave it now. And in different circumstances, Jeremy Corbyn might well be one of those, um, as might uh, the Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. And then there's a large group of Labour MPs who probably in terms of their personal views left to their own devices would be quite pro-EU and happy to undo the whole Brexit thing, but they represent constituencies where not necessarily most Labour voters, uh, but a a sizable proportion of the voters as a whole, and therefore possibly enough of a marginal portion of their voters, um, support Brexit, that that their seats could be up for grabs if you had an election where the primary issue was a binary Brexit or anti-Brexit vote. So like there's there's the the true believers, as it were, who are probably a small rogues gallery, and then there's the the more um, I'm afraid of my voters as a category who are somewhat smaller. Mark, you wanted to come in on that specific yeah, just, point? The, uh, just a slight complication on that would be that I think for most of those people, the tendency that you're talking about, whether we want to frame it as they're scared of their voters or they feel some responsibility to reflect what voters think... Um, that that is a very charitable guy. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I'm a very I admire charitable you. God person. God love you, Mark. I admire you for it. I'm a very charitable person all round. But 
for the, I think the principal way they framed that is that it's about freedom of movement, which is the the one thing that this deal does give you. Okay, in in, in lots of other ways, other ways it's compromised and you know kind of uh, uh, very difficult for people to get on board with. But the one thing that it does give you is freedom of movement. So for that group of Labour MPs who you know, however they want to put it, have seen a responsibility to try and reflect uh, the referendum outcome. They have framed that principally as being about freedom of movement. Now, does that mean that might mean that they would be more open to supporting the deal that uh, that uh, Theresa May is touting? Because that's the one thing that it unequivocally gives you. So, you know, uh, from a certain point of view. I think there's a group of people who are quite happy with somebody who was saying on Newsnight last night, remain but without freedom of movement. Okay, mm. which is, is which is it, what David Cameron would have quite liked to be offered. I is, think back when the the, the um, charade of a negotiation renegotiation of terms happened as the prelude to the referendum in 2016. If but Europe was very signally not prepared to make that concession at that point. Right, and I'd, and well, they, they, I think we'll never be prepared to make that concession because that's not what the EU is. But um, that makes that group difficult to predict, I think, because in a sense, if the thing that they really want is to show the voters that they have taken action on freedom of movement and on immigration, then there's an argument for supporting the deal. Mm. Um, so I think that makes it it's, they're, they're a difficult group to predict, although not probably that big mm. of a group. George? Yeah, just to, to build on this discussion about the freedom of movement, uh, I think I agree with most of the points so far. Uh, and indeed, the, the, the freedom of movement is perhaps uh, the only um, uh, red line of maze that is actually in a way satisfied by the deal. But I think perhaps we're focusing a bit too much on the, uh, on the deal that's now on the table and less on the actual uh, agreement on the future relationship that will come after the deal. Right. And I think this agreement will depend a lot on what will happen in the next few weeks or months. So, for example, okay, we're not making predictions, but maybe we can, in a way, map out different scenarios about the, the withdrawal deal. So, if the deal gets rejected first time, and then uh, May tries to bring it back, through an election, for example, which will be fought on either you support uh, me and the deal or you support no deal, then the outcome of this election could be very decisive about how the negotiations for the future relationship will be. So if the outcome of the election will give some sort of indication that there is a move away from a hard Brexit amongst the people, Mm. then there will be the flexibility to basically negotiate a softer Brexit um, during the, um, the negotiations for the future uh, relationship. And I think the thing with the freedom of movement is as well that so far the, you know, the freedom of movement has been discussed in very uh, white and black terms, as in either everybody comes or nobody comes. And actually, if, if you see the arguments that many of the Conservative Party are starting to put forward about a more Norway-type deal is the argument that we will have freedom of movement, but this will be with regards to people that come here to work, and we will also have an emergency break. Now, both of these things exist already, but people don't really, you know, they haven't been communicated Mm. to the people, right? It's this idea of, you know, people come here, they jump the queues, everybody comes here. So I guess 
what I'm trying to say is that the even if the deal, if the withdrawal deal gets uh, somehow uh, approved, there is so much flexibility and even uncertainty actually on how the final relationship between Britain and the EU will be at the end of the transition uh, period. Yeah, because this. This this deal, one of the things people don't like about it is that it's kind of punted, essentially, on some of the, what will ultimately be the most important issues for how this shakes out, especially trade relationships between between the UK and the, and the EU. And the original theory of how this was supposed to work would have been that while Britain remains in the EU and not yet departed, it, and the terms of its leaving are not yet set, it has various forms of leverage that it could use to try and secure favorable terms in that trade deal. But because Article 50 was declared at the time that it was, and then a ticking clock for leave one way or another was initiated, um, that leverage essentially evaporated. The script flipped as to who was in the tight spot, uh, and Britain is leaving with no promises of any of, of any substantive kind about anything, um, which whatever one thinks of Brexit, one might retrospectively diagnose as a pretty grave strategic um, error in the, the way the government went about its negotiations. Um, David, did you want to come in? On two elements of the discussion. So for, I suppose the first one is about like predictions. I suppose the prediction I would make is that there will there won't be a hard Brexit. There'll be some form of ultra soft Brexit, whatever happens, which either means no Brexit or some kind of postponement in for the next five or ten years and the outcome is basically we remain within the single market or something like the EEA or something like Norway Plus. So it seems to me that whatever happens it's gonna be an ultra soft Brexit. And, and I think that's probably because we're reading too much into the rhetoric. That we, Obviously, the rhetoric has to be you voted for Brexit, therefore you have to get Brexit. But the point, obviously, that the British ruling class are trying to produce is some kind of appearance of democracy at the same time of maintaining open trade relations and an open market system, because that's exactly what the British capitalist economy currently relies upon. So I think we should say in those terms that it's an attempt to produce a smokescreen and retain as much as, as far as possible the economic integration as it currently exists. And so, so just on the point of the Labour Party, I, would, I mean, I would say the same thing about the Labour Party. I don't think Corbyn... Corbyn also has to play this game of playing a rhetoric of being a bit Eurosceptic. But his... One of these kind of... Was it five or six golden rules that they have to... Has I to believe it's six. six. And I believe and they no, are... But one of them is the... Almost custom- deliber- well, not almost. They are deliberately constructed so as to be unpassable, essentially. Exactly. They're but, like but, Gordon Brown's test, five but, economic but, tests. But one of them is Europe. retain membership of the customs union. But, I mean, I, because I've, I can't quite understand this current discussion, distinction that's in the discussion between this idea that you stay in the single market but don't stay in the customs union, and, customs union under Norway, so-called Norway Plus, because I can't see how that could even be possible. If you're in the single market, you're in the customs union. So, and I think Corbyn's doing basically, I think we want to be, and it's kind of terminology, like you, not, we're going to be in the customs union, but not in the European Union. But the outcome will be effectively those kind of economic pressures that are produced by the single market will, re, will remain in place basically, in basically the same way. So I, I don't really see the Labour Party under Corbyn as either being particularly leaning towards moving things in a hard Brexit direction. Yeah, I mean, we're in, a, we're in an odd position uh, in some ways. And, you know, the normal theory of how politics works is that you have parties with programs that they think are a good idea. Uh, they run in elections and whoever wins then implements their program. And if it goes well, then they get to be happy and the voters reward them. And if it goes badly, then they're sad and the voters punish them. But because of the 
spanner into the works that this referendum has thrown, we've ended up with a prime minister um, and many senior members of her government who are implementing something that they explicitly do not think is a good idea, but bound by the constraints of this referendum. So um, it has this kind of cheerless death march quality of saying, well, like, I don't think like we're going to be worse off after I've done this, but um, you know, within the constraints I've been handed, I've got to do some version of it. So this is my best effort. What are you going to do? Uh, shruggy. Um, and that, uh, that, I suppose, puts the seed legitimately in people's minds, as you say, David, that like, if people's hearts are in it to that partial extent, initially, the idea that they might all just get together and say, well, if, we, if no one's up for this, if like only 10% of parliament legit thinks this is actually a good idea, maybe we could just not and then find a way to reverse engineer whatever route you need through through the quest for public legitimacy to make it, uh, to make it viable. Um, Charlotte? Yeah, so I think this is a, a really important point that we need to think about this in terms of the British constitution and the, the massive crisis that this referendum has um, instigated in terms of the British constitution. This is a very new concept in British politics that we even have referendums. But without a written constitution, we have no kind of framework under which referendums are held. Uh, and so what that meant was that Cameron was able to call a referendum for strategic and party political reasons without the kind of contingency planning that you might normally expect or the normal kind of processes under which you hold a referendum on constitutional issues that are laid down in other other parts of the world um and and so i think what we're seeing now is that um we don't the in westminster in parliament we don't really know how to deal with the situation um once it's happened we don't know there's, there's nothing kind of laid down that tells us what we need to do. Should we have to go back to the um, people in another referendum? Do MPs need to um, vote for this because we already had a referendum? So that, I think that this just raises a lot of questions about um, our constitution and the role of MPs versus these kind of direct mm -hmm. democracy. And I mean, the specifically bad way in which it was constructed was that the government was... Normally you have a referendum where the government wants to make a really big change and they seek permission through the referendum to do that. In this case, the government didn't want to change anything, so they asked for permission to not do a really stupid thing that they didn't support. And unfortunately, they were denied that permission, and then everybody quit their jobs. So the... The question of who is like well, first of all, there is a big question of what it is exactly, because there was basically a vote to like not have the status quo without the alternative being defined. But secondly, it wasn't clear who was responsible for doing the it afterwards, because ordinarily, if you get a yes in a referendum, the government wanted yes, so it's their responsibility to do it, or worst case scenario, someone else's responsibility to not do anything. Whereas the idea that there's a massive affirmative lift to be carried out, but no one who's specifically responsible for doing it, kind of breaks all the lines of accountability and that produces this kind of mess. Yeah, George? Yeah, just to, to uh, build up on the discussion about the referendum, I think for all the reasons we discussed, it's also quite tricky to think of hard Brexit as the, the option that respects the democratic will of the people. I think hard Brexit, well, we, knew, we know how uh, open the referendum question was and how open actually the, the outcome of the referendum was as well. So the fact that 
May went for hard Brexit was simply a choice that uh, she did. And you can actually, I think I would argue, uh, that is not particularly respectful of the referendum. Uh, the referendum never said we need to uh, leave uh, the customs union or even uh, the single market exactly because it was so open. You had 48% of people uh, actually supporting staying in the European Union. So you could say that hard Brexit is definitely against their wishes and mm. probably wish of some of the people that voted uh, to, leave, to, to leave as well. I think if you want to make a parallel, it's as if Remain had won and then the next day Cameron was, okay, so now we will join the euro, we will build an army, uh, we will, I don't know, you know, do all these sort of extreme Remain uh, options. So, of course, there are certain, th- you know, it, it goes back to, to the fact that the referendum was so open, so up to interpretation, and this is why we're in the mess we are now. But the idea that hard Brexit is the only thing that respects the democratic will of the people, I think, is a very dangerous idea, actually. And I mean, there's been there's been a, a, a moment of refreshing honesty in this debate that I think is built in turn on a much bigger pyramid of dishonesty from the hard Brexit side which is during the last week, several prominent people have said, well, this deal that we're being offered is worse than just staying in the EU. And like, I think they say that because they're reasonably confident that if it's presented in that binary way, that shores up, not undermines their support. But they really do believe that because their version of what Brexit was supposed to be was always this kind of... Um, ultra-hard neoliberal Thatcher on steroids vision where you get Britain out of all the constraints of the EU, you eviscerate the welfare state, uh, and you create some kind of night watchman uh, country in which uh, tax exiles uh, um, uh, basically set up shop while the population slaves away like serfs uh, to provide them with with services. Um, and the reason why that's like refreshing is because I believe that that puts on the table what these people actually want, which I think has a political support base of about 10% on a good day among the electorate, so it clarifies that issue. But they got to 52% in that referendum, and I don't think they are even to this day willing to look it clearly in the face by... Um, making arguments that basically sounded like they wanted uh, a much more interventionist government economic policy. They wanted a more generous welfare state for the in-group that is the citizenry in some ethno-nationalist sense. And they kind of grafted those quite saleable arguments onto uh, this uh, underlying fantasy of a, of, of a radical ultra-right-wing Thatcherite dream. Um, and they're still kind of telling themselves on some level that the mandate they got for that thing is uh, is the same as a mandate for what they they deep down wanted, which is, you know, um, uh, frustrating to the extent they really believe it, uh, I, I think. But maybe they're being nudged to, to think more uh, boldly about the compromises that they've made to get to this political position. Satiris. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, to, I agree completely with what you're saying. And I think it really ties well with what uh, Charlotte and uh, George were saying about uh, uh, the problem if you like, problem of, which sounds counterintuitive, saying that, oh, the referendum is a bit of a problem. And a lot of our listeners may think that, oh, these guys are really elitists, they don't really care about democracy. Uh, but actually, I think uh, what, uh, if you combine these two points about how the referendum can be interpreted wrongly or uh, create a problem, or what you were saying about how Brexit was sold, I think my, my view on that is that Britain lives its populist moment, if you like, and that's a very common trend across European nations, uh, you have a lot of people in around political systems in Europe that they ask for something. Uh, I don't know, 
changing of currency, uh, less immigration, more immigration, punish the elites. When they are in opposition, that really works because they give very simple solutions to very complicated problems. They give solutions that cannot be delivered in any way. And when they are in power, you have two things, either a complete collapse or paralysis. In Britain, we have both, I would argue. And we've seen that with the Tsipras government in Greece. They were saying we're going to be elected and in one week with one law. We're going to reverse austerity. Austerity is still there, even harsher now, uh, after like six months of like no government, almost closing the banks, etc. We have seen that in, in the Netherlands with the De Gilders party, which as soon as it became into power, then it lost power. We've seen that a similar trend in France with Le Pen asking all kinds of things, always going into the second round, but never getting into power, really. And what I'm trying to say here is that What Britain is experiencing now, this chaos, this paralysis, this confusion, it has seen before. And my argument is, the reason is because of this populist Brexit appeal. Mm -hmm. The problem is not Theresa May or the deal. The problem is Brexit. As an idea, it's wrong. It cannot be delivered. And mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say that to people who really believe in Brexit. But uh, as, as David said very nicely, I would be extremely surprised if even 10% of what it was promised in the referendum will be delivered just because it was... It sounded great. It sounds perfect when you're in opposition, but when you're in government and have to deliver it, you see all these trade-offs and it's so difficult to deliver. Um, yeah, just to follow on from that, I think, I mean, what we saw in the referendum, um, particularly on the Leave side, was a very strange coalition of demands that would, could never, ever be reconciled to you. And, mm -hmm. and this was also strategic to win the referendum. You had the kind of vote leave contingent, which included these hyper-globalist, hyper-Thatcherite um, Brexit supporters who have this vision of a, a completely deregulated economy. And then you had the leave.eu, the UKIP um, kind of backed um, campaigns that were really going down the kind of anti-immigration line who were also told that we can limit uh, immigration, but we can still keep all of the economic benefits of the EU. We can still stay in the single market, which was simply not possible. So, yeah, I think what we're seeing now is the reality of that campaign, that this ultimately was not, that, that, that these promises were made to different types of constituents uh, that, that simply cannot be all fulfilled. Yeah, would you want to say something on this idea of, Uh, you know, the impossibility of Brexit. Okay, so, I mean, one way you could interpret what populism is, right, is as a demand for liberal representative democracy to actually do what it says it does, which is uh, represent and reflect and implement the views of the people. Okay, so the populist urge arises from belief that that doesn't happen. Okay. Now, what you've got in the case of Brexit, you've got a situation where people, for a variety of reasons, yes, but people directly tell the government they want to do something that the government and parliament as a whole does not think is a good idea. Okay. So then you've got the clash. The clash that drives populism is there, right? You've got a clash between elites and people. Right? Now, this argument that, well, Brexit is just an impossibility... I think only fuels that, right? Because if your belief when you vote is that, well, you know, I'm ignored, uh, the, it's an elite stitch-up, okay, uh, my views are not taken into consideration in what's supposed to be a liberal representative democracy, and then somebody turns around to you and says, well, you want to control immigration, too bad you can't, okay? You want to stop sending lots of money abroad to an institution that you don't understand and don't care about, too bad you have to, 
Okay, you want to for you know laws to be originated in this country and not made in some arcane way that you don't understand. Sorry, that's necessary as well. I think all of that just reinforces that populist dynamic. And that's before we even get onto the question of let's have another vote and overturn all of it. So I mean, all the arguments well, we'll, 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 well, let's get on to that but, question. But, but, but you put your finger on a, on a good point because I do remember. Again, I'm old enough to remember the days before Britain leaving the European Union was an established policy. And whenever the argument of how we needed to control immigration um, from within the EU got put on the table, there would be a, a smug guffaw uh, from the cognoscenti uh, who, to whom this was put, but going, "These people making this argument just don't understand that you can't do that within EU law." Uh, so the logical question to people who really, really wanted that was then, well, maybe we shouldn't be um, submitting ourselves to those European laws if this thing that's a huge priority for us is debarred by them. So there's a kind of, there was an inadvertent escalating effect of bringing, of, of, of um, asserting that EU law was the thing that prevented uh, Britain from doing things that it otherwise would do, as opposed to actually saying, no, on the merits, we don't want to do that, but saying, well, we might sympathise, but we can't because the EU won't let us, which is a kind of cowardly thing national governments have been doing for quite a while. David. Thanks. I think it's good because now we're sort of getting more into like the question of why did the thing happen in the first place? So, I mean... I suppose for me, the point would be that we're talking about managing capitalist democracy, which is basically an elite stitch-up. So I mean, I think the, I think the point is that we do have to make that point rather than sort of saying, you know, basically the people got it wrong and they're and they're a bit stupid and they misperceived that there's some notion that the elite are governing not in their interests. I think the elite are governing not in their interests. So in ter- then if we try to explain, well, what, how does that link to the European Union? I think one well, the key thing would be, or the key the research shows the key thing that p- pushed the British population towards. Um, a Brexit vote was eight years of austerity, which was imposed since 2010 under the first the coalition and then the Conservative government. And then well, how does the European Union fit into that? Well, the European Union's role basically has been to create and consolidate a market economy across Europe. And then with every experience of economic downturn to advance further liberalisation of either trade or, uh, or, or capital or goods and services and so on. So that liberalisation is the solution to every slowdown in economic growth, including the 2008 crisis and the whole agenda that was advanced by the European Union was neoliberalisation and further de-democratisation. So it, it was a further elite stitch-up, which then, if we see it in those terms, it's not surprising, I don't think, that the, 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 the austerity agenda turned into Euroscepticism. Hmm. Charlotte, so it's about the forgotten man and woman who uh, have been uh, cast aside by by the political consensus of the elites, which in turn is buttressed by the EU. Do you agree with that diagnosis? Well, just to come back on um, the point that David was making, that I think we, we also need to remember where these drivers are coming from. So drivers of austerity in the UK is not the EU. I mean, we can argue about what's happening in Greece and, and the euro crisis, but It's been the UK that has been the major uploader of neoliberal kind of economics within the EU. So I think we have to be very careful about how we imagine the UK outside of uh, the EU and whether it's realistic to uh, hope that we're going to uh, see uh, a sudden reduction of austerity and loss of neoliberalism. But I think the other, the other. I mean, you're right that austerity was definitely a factor in the vote but we also know that 
uh, this was not just something that was coming from the working classes. In fact, there's no link between voting leave and um, identifying as working class, but there is a link between uh, identifying as middle class and um, voting for leave. Um, so a large proportion of this vote did not come from people suffering economically, but was to do with bigger issues of identity and values. Yeah, on that austerity point, that's something that a few of us have discussed uh, more than once about the, the, the importance of austerity in this. I think one of the counter-arguments that you could put against the idea that austerity is a, a, a decisive factor in all this, if you think about who's most affected by austerity in the UK, it's poor people, it's probably um, recent immigrants, Okay, it's young people. Okay, So it's people who don't vote, didn't vote, can't vote, and people who voted remain. So the idea that the leave vote is driven by austerity, I think only in a very sort of indirect and very compromised way does that really affect um, the outcome. If you look at the, the, the sort of core of leave support, a lot of it's people who, frankly, austerity is going to make very little difference to their lives. People who are not working because they're retired or near retirement, who have uh, built up uh, you know, a certain amount of assets and who essentially, austerity, probably pretty much pass them by, uh, but who are interested in things about identity and sovereignty and, and immigration. So for those reasons, I'm always sceptical about arguments that put austerity right at front and centre of the explanation. And, and also, I don't think people make the link between the EU and austerity. Now, you might do it as a kind of you know, untargeted backlash against, you know, any form of authority kind of thing. But I don't think those those links are, are, are clear enough to me to think that that's the explanation. Yeah, I would agree with uh, Charlotte and Mark about not putting so much emphasis on austerity in the traditional way that we understand that, oh, if people suffer economically, then they revolt against the system. I just want to remind here that the system actively in Britain has really cultivated Euroscepticism. Uh, Euroscepticism is not like a bottoms-up movement. It's a top-down movement. It comes from extremely wealthy people. It comes from, uh, like, you know, Checo Prismog, other kind of lead. Uh, Boris Johnson, apparently, he's a leader. So what I'm saying is that it's not like as if we have some kind of working-class warriors fighting the system. It's a little bit, if you like, a Bullington Club disagreement. Of, and the uh, press, I mean, the broadsheet press, the right-wing broadsheet press. Yeah, you see who absolute hinge. Daily Mail, etc., The Sun. It's not like the poor uh, layman who is, like, really struggling and they want to uh, protest the, the system. Uh, and I would say here that uh, we see the wider kind of, if you like, failure of the British elite to support its own interests. And in a way, uh, I, th- I think that's a quite uh, an interesting point to see from a Marxist point of view that uh, I know David likes and uh, I-, I like sometimes as well, is that in a way the elite almost did itself in. So basically the elite had a very strong interest keeping this European integration going. But by doing all this blame shifting and all this like, oh, it's not us, it's the EU, or it's not us, it's the European law, or it's not us, it's immigration, or you have a problem with your NHS or your school. Well, yeah, it's because there's so many immigrants in. It's not us because we have cut the funding. And to conclude with that is that the, 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 the crazy thing of it is that when you look at the immigration in Britain, 
two-thirds of immigration in Britain every year comes from outside the EU. It's only one-third of immigrants who are European people. Mm. But people voted for Brexit to stop immigration, which is one-third of the problem. So even if we have a hard Brexit, <laughs> we will still have a big part of the immigration coming in because they were coming in anyway because of the non-EU. So the whole project, in my view, or, or the, the way we are, it, like, it really, it really beggars belief. Like, I, I, I raise my hands up and I say, what's going on? Right, which, which just makes the important point clear that it is, it is entirely consistent to sympathize with those who have been marginalized and excluded systematically for generations by changes in the British economy and the political leadership that's brought that about, while at the same time saying that 99.9% of all of that is the product of British public policy made by British institutions without any meaningful barrier uh, coming from Europe to steps that might have made all of that very different. And so, you know, whether through cynicism or delusion, um, that a misconception has been sown and has really taken seed that the barrier to a whole bunch of remedies to the plight of the unemployed or the poor or the marginalized in the British economy uh, lies via exit from the European Union, which just isn't true, which is to say you could perfectly well have stayed in the EU and done a whole bunch of redistributive or economically interventionist things to address those issues, and you could perfectly well leave the EU and do nothing whatsoever uh, that will speak to those issues, and it seems like we might be on, on, on Track two. I think that's to misread the history of, the, of European integration. I don't think it is delusional. I think the European Union is set up precisely to prevent those kinds of imp redistributive implementations. I mean, that was basically the, pu the purpose of the Maastricht Treaty to try and lock in fiscal sensibility, which was basically around trying to advocate welfare retrenchment. The promotion of the single market was precisely uh, advocated on the grounds that it would heighten competitiveness, it would reduce welfare inefficiency. Uh, financial market liberalisation was around, was justified in the same terms, and the response to the 2008 crisis was basically welfare states have been too bloated, and that's why we have to advocate a retrenchment option. So mm. it's not it's not delusional. <laughs> it's it's well, basically it, what the thing was set up for. Well, well, I mean, it is and it isn't. In that, I mean, like I am racking my mind to think of the last time the, the British. Um, people elected a British government that wanted to do uh, radical leftist things but was prevented from doing those things by the intervention of the European Union. Um, it's an unrun experiment fundamentally because the, the electoral consensus in Britain has been, if anything, to the right of that of the European Union on, on these issues, is it not? It's debatable, isn't it? I mean, the, obviously, the, the, main, the main Social Democratic Party during the same period also took a rightward turn, which was also quite heavily linked to its switch in terms of support for the European Union, so that the two went together. So it's difficult, to, like you say, to test a kind of counter-historical counter, uh, uh, experiment whereby a, so a, a more left-leaning alternative would have been viable. But So you can't really test it both ways. Right. But, I mean, at the very least, we can agree that it's not the simple version of this, which would be the British government wants to do stuff and the EU won't let them. It's sort of a much more indirect thing where what, the, wi yeah. the will of exactly. the British social democratic left gets sapped by their association yeah. with European Exactly. The European Union is an institution that facilitates the goals of national political elites, which is to de-democratise their decision-making process so that they can present neoliberalism as the only option. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, This is where you get punchy. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I will try to constrain myself. Uh, even though I agree with uh, a lot of the points that uh, uh, David makes, and uh, um, he will be surprised to hear that I agree with uh, some of the stuff mm -hmm. he says, 
I think still that we give too much importance to the European Union, believe it or not. Uh, so, for instance, yes, indeed, what David says is 100% true. The European Union is a neoliberal project supporting monetarism, supporting fiscal cons uh, consolidation, ordo-liberalism, if you want to use that term, yes. However, within the European Union, you have some of the most generous egalitarian and progressive welfare states in the world, like Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Netherlands. So, yes, there is a direction, but member states still have a lot of freedom to do stuff they want. Uh, so, for instance, you know, the Swedish welfare state, yes, it has gone through years of, uh, let's say, some consolidation, some austerity, some cutting back, yeah, but it's so, so, so much more generous than the British welfare state. So, yes, they're both in the single market, but you have a Sweden and you have a Britain kind of case, right? So, uh, I would agree with Adam that I cannot see how Britain was somehow, in a way, pushed into a corner by the EU in this kind of uh, sector. I agree with you that the EU has these features, but member states still have a lot of freedom to do stuff they want. And Britain hasn't used that. And whenever they don't use it, they say, oh, we cannot use it because the EU tells us uh, not. Well, that's not the case. Just following on from that, I, I think... We also have to remember that the, the, the EU is not kind of completely separate from the um, member states, that these are not kind of sep completely separate institutions. It's the member states that are defining the um, direction uh, of the European Union, and that's developed on the basis of consensus or majority. So we also have to acknowledge the role of the UK and other member states, the role that they have in driving these kinds of... And, and just to add something, and uh, I'll stop, uh, I'll let other people talk, it's also the public. Uh, if you see the European Parliament, the last 10, 20 years, uh, the biggest party is the European People's Party. Uh, and it's like a right-wing coalition of Merkel, Cameron, well, Cameron, Cam not Kirill Cameron, uh, and centre-right party. So in European elections, the biggest party or the first party in the European Parliament voted by the people is centre-right. So that's why I agree with David. Yes, the EU has a certain especially the last 20 years, centre-right tone. That's true. But is it an elite stitch-up or pe uh, people are misguided? But it's, they certainly vote for these things. Mm. David, I want to ask you a question, um, not that you are the representative of the left in its totality, but uh, a question about the dilemmas to which some of what you've said give rise within the actually existing left in, in the UK right now, which is to say there is a portion of the parliamentary left, uh, the part, portion that happens to control the Labour Party right now, um, Jeremy Corbyn, John MacDonald, that have long had uh, reservations at the very least about the EU for the reasons that you suggest, and who, depending on who they're briefing these days, might be happy to say that there are opportunities arising as well as downsides from leaving the EU because uh, various forms of economic intervention that the EU would prohibit, etc., might become viable um, under a under a, a post-Brexit uh, regime, so long as they don't get blamed for it. Um, but it is also clear that for a variety of social and political trend-related reasons, the Labour Party, um, in terms of its, its members and activists, has moved totally in the opposite direction to that. It's become the party of uh, metropolitan, urban, young people, uh, socially liberal, usually, a whole range of different voter attributes have coalesced under this, this version of the Labour Party that all um, coincide with Remain. So at some point during these negotiations, 
Jeremy Corbyn is going to have to make a calculation about does he does he decide that he is going to set aside his reservations about the EU and set aside his reservations about Labour voters and their possible leave um, tendencies to throw in his lot either with simply reversing Brexit or having a second referendum with the aim of reversing Brexit? Um, or is he going to throw in his lot with the large number of extremely vocal activists who joined the Labour Party in many instances specifically to support him, who are very, very keen that the European Union should, uh, that they should stay in the European Union. Like, is, is he going to betray his vocal activist base, as it were, or is he going to betray the Levy Labour voter and his own previous intellectual convictions? Yeah, um, I don't know, but um, but but you see the yeah. The I mean, challenge I think, I, think I suppose the point I'm making is that the the decision's kind of gone. The, the point of creating the single market was to lock in and integrate the British economy within the broader European single market. And so the the debate that we've had is about whether well, the European Union didn't force the European the UK to have austerity because it wasn't did not, it basically wasn't a, a fiscal crisis directly affecting the UK, and so they did it voluntarily. But the point was that all of the other options had already been ruled out through the process of 20 or 25 years of neoliberalisation, which was done under the guise of European integration. So, so to go to the question of whether then will Corbyn undo all of that, I think it's basically too late. That, so what we talked about before was if the European Union is creating neoliberalism, then that doesn't necessarily mean that leaving the European Union undoes all of neoliberalism, because leaving the European Union, as we've seen, is basically a sort of xenophobic, uh, right-wing, right-wing uh, mission. So basically we're faced with the option of neither supporting a neoliberal European Union nor supporting uh, a right-wing, xenophobic Brexit. So, so basically, Corbyn will be faced with the same dilemma. Basically, he'll well, we've seen that already because one of the six golden rules is basically stay, basically, roughly speaking, within the single market. So, more like what would be is again some kind of dressing whereby they say we can have state aid, but state aid under the rules of uh, the European Union, which will mean that basically state aid can't give national advantage to the UK. So, it'll be a kind of market-friendly version of state aid, and then that'll be probably mm. presented as the compromise that the left can secure within either a Brexit UK or more likely a ultra-soft Brexit UK, I suppose. Mm. Do you see what I mean? I think I do. I mean, I, I think you're sort of a Brexit edgelord of sorts, or at least an anti-capitalist edgelord in the sense that it doesn't, um, uh, doesn't really matter what happens because the terribleness is so pervasive and locked in and perhaps even the stuff of society's right. yes, like fundamental atomic structure itself. Even a Britain that had Brexited and was led by, like, uh, by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell still couldn't really touch the sides of the issues you're talking about because they're so fundamental and the, yeah. the slipstream to awfulness as you see it is is so inescapable to a degree politicization might reopen if through brexit but the sort of xenophobic element of it isn't sufficient to mean that you should advocate brexit to achieve that politicization but really the, the solution is, is politicization itself of a left-wing type not to have not to allow right-wing populists to come in and to use the context to their advantage but rather to politicize it from a left left-wing perspective around issues like solidarity mm. and so on yeah, Charlotte. Yeah, I would. I would kind of agree that actually, whether we stay in or leave the EU, it's not going to solve that that particular uh, issue. But it's also not going to solve 
the wider issues that um, drove the referendum votes. We this was a or it opened up or reflected bigger um, values divides uh, on kind of social liberal on the social liberalism authoritarian divide it opened up identity divides whether you see yourself as a kind of cosmopolitan or open to european identity or international identities or whether you see yourself as having kind of more exclusive uh, national identity it opened up it's a cleavage about generally openness to immigration it's about how we view our past and our um, memory of um, the empire. It's all kinds of issues that actually have nothing to do with the EU that um, fed into this vote. And I, I don't see how any of those things are going to be reconciled, regardless of whether we leave the EU or not, or regardless of whether we have another referendum or not. Um, and all of the talk that we have about the Brexit deal, the negotiations, or is it going to be a hard Brexit or is it a soft Brexit? Um, this actually just stops us talking about what is it that actually is dividing British society and how can we deal with that? Let's, let's, let's <laughs> dive into the second <laughs> referendum question then while, while we still have time because there have been, uh, uh, there's been a group of people alive and about in British Parliament, in political society, in journalism, for some time advocating what they call the people's vote, which is a slightly cringy name for it. But the basic idea is uh, that the British people did not either get good information last time or the choice was misframed or they have the right to change their mind, whatever the reasoning is. We need, we need once this deal is clarified, to have another vote in which on the table is the option of simply calling the whole thing off and, and reversing it. Now, that was treated as a kind of quixotic eccentricity for some time. I've like uh, long believed that so long as it was the case that most people didn't think this was a good idea, the possibility that it would not be done remained quite plausible. Uh, but it seems that um, it's become more uh, acceptable in the mainstream in the last few weeks to say, hold on a minute, maybe there actually is going to be a second referendum. Maybe this is really going really to happen. But that's produced... Um, quite a strong pushback from people saying, well, look, the next referendum will not be uh, uh, any better informed or more civil in how it's run than the last one. Um, the British people who were given a choice last time made it and will be extremely annoyed to be asked to make it again. So you may get a backlash result. It will be very divisive. So a lot of the cleavages that have been opened up will be reinforced. You know, I'll put my own cards on the table that I... You know, I, I hated that first referendum. I thought the way it was set up structurally was catastrophic for the reasons that we've already outlined. I think it's produced the situation where we have a choice between doing something that puts us in an objectively worse situation than the current one or not doing that thing. And a, a second referendum like, has merit, for my mind, like exclusively as a way of slapping a, a thin veneer of legitimacy on the decision that the elites would like to make and should make, which is that this was never a good idea and just shouldn't be done. And, you know, it may be very divisive, uh, but the current situation is very divisive. And if it was won by 50.001% and Jacob Rees-Mogg and the European Research Group took the hills in guerrilla warfare in the immediate aftermath, I would be prepared to accept that 
as the cost of doing business uh, to, to undo this thing because you know I just think getting back to a political system where the government does what it actually thinks is best and then people vote against them if they want to is just going to put us back on a healthier track but I know that that's a, I, I know that that's a, a slightly um, scorched earth policy of the sort that uh, someone in my position is free and easy to have and politicians aren't necessarily what do others around the table think about this second referendum issue well I think there are some technical reasons why it's difficult, and then I think there are some other reasons why it's a bad idea. The technical reasons are, one, when are we going to do it? We're supposed to be leaving in March. Okay, Parliament has to pass an act if you want to get a referendum ready. So that's difficult, okay, with the clock ticking. Other reasons, technical reasons why it's difficult, unlike the first one, there's a real danger of uh, what some political scientists call a condorcet paradox, You've got three options now, which is May's deal, uh, exit or leave with no deal, and remain. Okay, now it might be that those preferences are circular. Okay, uh, uh, taken as a, uh, the population as a whole, which means that whichever one gets the most support, okay, most people are unhappy. Okay, you get you could would have you could have a position that wins with let's say I don't know forty percent. Okay, that means you've got sixty percent who hate it. Okay, well, and that might be true for all the possibilities. Okay, that they could each muster forty percent support uh, on their own, but they don't defeat the other two options. So it's technically more difficult than uh, leave remain. But I also think there's reasons why it might be a bad idea to have it, and reasons why most people who support the people's vote uh, or the second referendum do so because they think the result will be remain, and why I think that is not necessarily something to be you know, overly celebrating about. Because if the worst outcome that people can imagine at the moment is no deal and the economic risk that comes with that, I think you also have to consider the political risk of a second referendum that produces a remain result or some compromise result that no one's happy with, like the the, the Theresa May's deal or something like that, which totally negates the original referendum and we pretend that it never happened. Because, as I said before, if the problem, as some people saw it when they voted leave, was the idea that they are being told their opinion doesn't matter, uh, things that they want are impossible, okay, what better way to prove it than have a major democratic exercise and then say, no, chuck all that in the bin. Mm-hmm. Okay? We're going back and we're doing what we wanted to do all along. Right? So for that reason, I think there's a huge political risk around that, that that, you know, inflames populism, uh, you know, that stab in the back myth is, is in the post, don't worry about that. I said that probably a year and a half ago when I was on the podcast. But I feel like that's coming anyway. Don't it's you? coming like, anyway, that's leave, what I mean, yeah, it was always EU, coming. Like when we leave the EU and it, sli- it, it starts to slice into GDP and there isn't a big new redistributive public policy agenda um, that gives people opportunities they felt they were missing before... That's going to create a huge gap in the political marketplace to explain whose fault this is and why you should vote for them as a result of that. And that, if anything, the objectively degenerating circumstances of the UK after exit from the EU would seem to create just as many risks of stab-in-the-back narratives and escalatory politics of the populist right. Because it's going to go badly, and people said it would go well, so how is that going to get accounted for? Yeah, it's coming. It was always coming. There was a, Whatever version of it happens will not be, you know, uh, will not satisfy everybody. 
and there will be room for UKIP or something like UKIP to have a resurgence on that basis. With their new member, Tommy Robinson, of the literally fascist Well, exactly, right? right? So the, the question, as far as I'm concerned, then, is that sub-in-the-back idea is coming, some political movement mobilised around that is coming. The question is, how big is it going to be? If you've told 17 million people to do one, I think it, it, the receptiveness of those 17 million people to that sort of uh, political project might well be higher. Mm. And the, you know, that has to be weighed against you know, whatever forecast people are making economically about doom and gloom uh, in the event of leave. Charlotte? Um, I mean, I completely agree that it's a very risky move to have a referendum uh, for, for those reasons, also because we uh, don't really know how it's going to go. Uh, we can't assume that it would go the way that we might want it to go. The polls are shifting slightly, but we, don't, we haven't had a campaign yet, we don't know. Um, so it, it's definitely a really risky move. But I think it's also worth thinking about some of these, um, some other issues. Firstly, I find it a bit strange. Um, so once you've already delegated this issue to the public, I find it very strange to then say, well, we, we won't go back to the public on this. So we had a referendum on these kind of very vague idea of whether we want to leave the EU. We now know uh, a bit more about what that's going to look like. And I find the arguments about, well, we've, we've already had a referendum a bit strange because I think it's also a case, a matter of whether you, um, whether this is really going to be a referendum that's replaying that um, original referendum or whether this is really a vote on the deal. And there are different ways um, that we might go about running a second, uh, a second re- referendum. Um, but I agree that it's very tricky um, just technically in what the question actually is and how we go about doing that. But the other thing I think is also we need to think about the views of the people that voted Remain um, and the people who are really going to suffer from this Brexit and the people that are also going to experience a massive loss of rights that really affect their lives in, in profound ways. Um, so I did some, uh, did a survey of one of the big anti-Brexit marches in London, and what really came out of this survey was that how disenfranchised people felt by this whole process. So they, in particular, respond to this idea of the will of the people, um, and you see banners there where they say, we are the people too. So it's this idea that um, actually now it's completely shifted, and we're now disenfranchising the, the other constituency. Um, it's also about how people relate to political parties. So they very much refer to the Labour Party and feeling like the Labour Party is not representing them. There are no MPs in Parliament who are representing their interests, people that uh, are going to suffer from this loss of rights, transnational families who will have to profoundly change their, their life plans. Um, so either way, I think there's a risk involved in um in referendums that risk kind of that sentiment of uh, that pushes towards um or creates that kind of distrust um that's my yeah i mean and just to endorse your first point there about the indeterminacy of what des- what was decided i mean it kind of feels like like britain voted two years ago on a referendum like shall we go out on friday night right and they voted yes and during the referendum campaign people were like 
We'll have tea at the Ritz and we'll like have a no-expenses-spared tour of all the best London nightclubs all on the table. And now Friday night is here and the offer is like a, a glass of flat lager standing around a brazier on an industrial estate without an outdoor coat like in, in December. And everyone's like, well, we all said we were going to go out. So I'm afraid like it's just like settled now. Stop complaining. Like, I, there's there's got to be a minimum level of content to what the it's going to be before you can really like insist that people abide by their pre previous commitments, doesn't that? George? Yes, um, I think the, the whole discussion about the referendum, a second referendum, the first referendum, uh, is actually uh, very interesting with regards to how politics are done today, actually. So I think the, particularly what you, the discussions we've had since the first referendum and the whole discussion about sovereignty, it, in a way, it shows a very interesting shift from uh, towards perhaps a more populist um, understanding of uh, politics. So uh, if, if we go back to how Brexit started as a process uh, and when uh, May wanted to trigger Article 50, uh, probably most of us remember uh, the court case uh, between that... Uh, individuals, Miller in particular, uh, brought against the government with regards to uh, whether the government was able to trigger Article 50 without the agreement of the parliament, um, so act on the referendum result, which the court case in itself, in a way, I mean, the main question is who is actually sovereign? Is it the people and therefore the government can act on the decision of the referendum? Or is, it the, or is it still the parliament and therefore um, may needed the approval of the parliament? So in this type of politics where we moved on to having people, understanding people much more as a source of sovereignty rather than the parliament, which is elected by the people and, and so on, um, I'm not so sure if there are many uh, um, options with regards to having or not referendums. I'm not sure actually if uh, the only option to go forward with this uh, is to go through a referendum again exactly because we live in an era where the parliament has been so much more uh, discredited against the will of the people. I'm not, I don't think a second referendum will be a good thing, but I don't think we're in a good place anyway. And I think what, what uh, Charlotte and you Adam were saying before is also important. Uh, there are ways of looking at this not as a second referendum, but as a separate referendum uh, in a way that uh, it doesn't. It, it doesn't go against the will of the first referendum. It's it's on a rather different question. It's not about leaving or staying. It's about the terms on which you leave, basically. Um, and um, again, I haven't made my mind up as to whether I support this. Uh, but there are certainly different ways of looking at it, and ways that are um, move beyond this idea that is a rerun of the first referendum, and therefore. Uh, somehow undermining the first referendum. So would that mean not having Remain as an option then, if it's a different question? We've decided the principle, we're just on the details. Yeah. It's, it's a referendum on the deal, do you, do you accept the deal or not? And then we work out what happens if not so afterwards, you, but, but, but the question of leave or Remain has been settled. I mean, that's been discussed, whether Remain should be an option, hasn't it? Which gets rid of the 
the Condorcet paradox about the, the circularity, but mm. you know, I, th- I imagine a lot of people well, would remain to be an option. And there are those who don't want option. No Deal to be, a, to, to be an option. There are those who want Remain and right. Theresa May's deal, because Theresa May's deal is the actually existing Brexit that we have, and nobody supports No Deal except for like nut jobs. But this is your point um, about... the. A second referendum being more technically complicated that yes we can have a question about this deal but then you need some provision for okay well what happens if they vote the deal down and i think the people's vote campaign have different options for what that could be so either you have a a binary referendum where you ask do you want the deal or do you want to remain in the eu there would be you could also run it uh, um, as a question do you want uh, the deal or no deal uh, or um, other versions of that. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely that's a, a debate that needs to be had. Is like what options do we actually put out there if the deal isn't done? David, you go first because okay. you're leaning in. Thanks. Like Cheryl Sandberg over there. <laughs> Thanks. No, I just you provoked me with your um, Friday night shall we go out option, which kind of goes back to the same idea, which you know the ultra remainers are quite wedded to, which was that basically everybody was deluded and nobody really had anything. That, sorry, nobody really had anything that they were unhappy about, and and so if we rerun it and in a fair way, then the outcome would be completely different, which I don't really agree with. It's not so much about being fair as it is about being specific. There was nothing specific no, sure. okay, let me finish last then. time. Sure. People could just promise sure. anything they wanted. I just want to talk about this research, which I like, so this is why I like talking about it, which is um, by uh, Sasha Becker and Tiemo Fetzer, which, whose, whose multiple points are, one, going back to the idea of it wasn't austerity that did it. I mean, their point is it's a coalition, obviously, of quite conservative, white, older people living in the countryside and benefits claimants who felt threatened by the austerity agenda. So it can be both at the same time, I think, would be what I would say to draw on their research to respond to uh, the point that Mark was making. But then on, they also say that the best predictor of the, of the Leave vote was UKIP voters in the 2014 referendum. And the point they're trying to make, which I agree with, is that people had made up their mind. It wasn't this idea of people being deluded by buses and so on. People had a much more deeply embedded hostility towards the status quo with and they associated the European Union, perhaps rightly so in some ways, as part of the cause of the problems that they were uh, reacting to. Yes, uh, I agree with uh, David, and uh, I think that, uh, no, it wasn't, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of discussion, and there are some scholars who say, oh, if the campaign was better, if Cameron uh, and Corbyn did X, Y, Z, I agree with David that actually, the, and Charlotte mentioned that earlier, that there's a very big cleavage in the British society, and it wasn't like some kind of circumstantial mistake. And this leads me back to my point about the second, your question, Adam, about the second referendum or not. How can we prevent this bad thing that we think? Again, I will revert to the European experience. And I would say that, unfortunately, and I'm saying that with, in, with sadness because I live in this country. If I was living in Italy or France, I would be laughing about it. We cannot really revert. Probably Brexit, it will happen. And probably it has to happen. That's the only way, in a way, to go back to the status quo. We have to give to the people who voted leave what they asked for see what their policies that they asked for mean, and then if they still want to go along, that's fine. If not, they can change their mind. But us, if you like the elites, the academics, the politicians, or a second vote uh, with like two or three or four options, uh, it will not solve the problem. It will accentuate it. I think Brexit somehow has to happen, and as you know, I'm very against it. The, the economic and political and social repercussions will be very negative for Britain mostly, and the EU. And then we can have another discussion after that to see, okay, was it a good decision or not? But right now, I think the majority still is for Brexit. Yeah, I I like how I'm ending up as the the hardliner on this because I just don't have 
uh, I don't have your confidence that that's how these things work. I just feel like if uh, if Britain brexits and it goes badly, then neither the people whose idea it was nor the people who voted for it will actually uh, accept or receive the blame for the reasons why it's gone badly. And uh, things uh, can always get worse and probably will get worse without any learns any lessons learned necessarily. I'm interested in a second referendum exclusively for the purposes people don't like it, which is as a, a cynical tool used by the elite to put a pattern of legitimacy on achieving what they think is actually the right thing to do, which is to not do this. And then once we've done it, we should bury the idea of having referendums at the bottom of a haunted mine uh, where, the, where it will never be Sorry, discovered, what, never be discovered again. Win? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I just don't think we'd be any worse off if they if they didn't win. Um, I mean, I could list the reasons why I think it should win, but uh, I, I think the gamble is worth taking. I certainly don't think it's it's assured. But unless people see the negative aspects of Brexit that we think they are, they will never vote for Remain. But oh, we well. do, do we not also have responsibility to um, kind of fight for the rights of people that are going to suffer from this? I mean, it's all very well saying, OK, Brexit has to happen to show those people that they um, that there is no kind of good type of Brexit. But don't we also have responsibility to the people who are going to suffer? And that's the people who will suffer economically. And it's not just white northern northern working class people it's minority women especially who are going to suffer most from the austerity that will come from brexit and it's also the people who are going to be put in a precarious situation once they lose their eu citizenship so yeah i mean i i kind of agree that in some ways it's unavoidable but i think we also need to kind of remember what is at stake as well by Letting I it completely happen. agree with Charlotte, uh, but this is where uh, uh, what I was saying earlier that we live in a populist moment. I think that I completely agree with you, but there will be a lot of opposition against what we're saying because they will say, "Oh, you are highly educated, you have a stable job, you are liberal elite, you live in a city. I don't know, you have a good income, whatever. So be quiet. You don't know what's going on." And then what happened in the referendum? So uh, it's what uh, Mark was saying earlier that this will create another kind of narrative of, oh, they, they stitch up, they betray us, they don't care about us. So that, that's, that's the reason why I'm saying that somehow it has to happen so people don't feel betrayed. But I also agree with you that, yes, the people that will be hurt will be the vulnerable, not the Jacob Rismog of this country. Yes. Uh, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of H.L. Uh, Mencken quotes about the nature of democracy that I could be throwing around. I recommend the, the, uh, the listeners Google them up uh, to find out what, what, ep what uh, epigrammatic thoughts I might end on, but I'll restrain myself. Um, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Um, you can also find our show page on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview. Mark Zuckerberg may not be prepared to enter the country. Country, uh, but his product is very much available and you can find us there for uh, links to the show. Uh, leave comments, etc. We are on SoundCloud, or uh, I normally say iTunes here, but I think it's changed its name to Apple Podcasts now. Uh, same, the, same deal, basically. You can find us on the Apple Podcast app. And leave us a rating or a comment. Share us on social media. Recommend us. Uh, uh, much appreciated if you do. Our participants today have been uh, Mark Goodwin. Can people find you online anywhere? Sort of. I um, do have a Twitter page, which is still active, but I'm in self-imposed exile because I kept getting into arguments with people on there. And I subsequently realised there's no point. So I, there's well, a page there if you want to look at the old arguments. For the last hour and a half, what possible issues could people have to raise with you should they be listening to this? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, troll me on there if you want. I won't be looking at it. 
<laughs> Excellent. That's, that's the engagement strategy we At like Mark to hear. Ardo, good win. Mm. Satiris, where can people find you, if anywhere? Uh, yeah, the Pulse's website, where is the profile and the email, and Twitter. George? The same for me, the Pulse's website and Twitter. And I do argue with people. What, what is your Twitter address? That's fine. It's uh, George Curious. Just all one word. Charlotte, are you a social media I'm titan? I'm not on Twitter, no. My, my. <laughs> oh, do, uh, can people find you anywhere else? Do you, do you post publicly on Facebook? No. What, what a very cloistered environment this is, social media-wise. David, do you uh, etch opinions into stone tablets in the public square uh, periodically? Where it's, do you uh, follow your thoughts? It's uh, at DJBailey231. Excellent. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me on Twitter, at Adam James Quinn, uh, but I don't use it very much because it's like full of... Uh, uh, contentious Russian robots pretending to be Americans shouting at you. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, whose ethical stock is also plummeting, but which I at least enjoy. Uh, I'm standing in sunglasses in front of the American Capitol building, uh, but I'm Adam Quinn 161 by number, if you like. Um, we've been produced by Connor McKenna, as always, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department, Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham in England. Thanks to the Pulses Good Ideas Fund for their support, which we appreciate as always. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye.